Howdy, everyone. Good evening. You're watching Dangerous Thoughts here on Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren. Good to see you all. Or, I don't know. I don't really see you. I kind of see that you're watching. Um, Yeah, welcome. Today's agenda, we're going to talk about, we're going to do um, Media Matters published a hit piece on Matt Walsh. We're going to walk through it today because it's uh, there's some great examples of um, some of the tactics that that people use when they do hit pieces. And I want to expose those tactics to you and, and uh, help people understand what they are. Um, if we have some time after that, we might talk about the Jones Act just a little bit. It's in the news lately because of uh, Puerto Rico recovering from Hurricane Fiona. And, uh, and you know, we'll do a little bit of, if people have questions, we'll do some questions. We didn't, uh, I didn't get a lot of questions in Discord, so I decided to not make this a call-in show today. Um, and we'll just, and I have enough to talk about with, with the Matt Walsh stuff, which will take, I think quite a long time. So as a reminder, um, please make sure you're subscribed, uh, on YouTube or Utreon or Odyssey, or most importantly, Rumble. I think we're going to start doing a little bit more on Rumble. So, um, if you want to go ahead and hit the subscribe button over on any of those platforms, that will be helpful. Also financial support's always helpful. You can go through PayPal or subscribe star, you can go to unsafespace.com to do all that. And also hugely important and free to you, share share this content. If you like this show, if you like any show that we've done, share it, share it around, give it to your friends, DM them if you don't want to uh, do it publicly, you know, for shame that you do it publicly. Uh, <laughs> but um, please do that. A lot of the topics that we cover on Dangerous Thoughts are evergreen topics, so they're not even necessarily something that uh, you know, dies with the news. I think the same is true for Rebel Civics. Some of the other shows are a little bit more topical, but still. Anyway, all right, let's get to it. Welcome to everyone in chat. Uh, hey, Justifiably Stupid, Greg the Baritone, Mr. Drummer, Julianne. Howdy, howdy, howdy. <clears throat> all righty. Maybe I should put this hit piece up on screen. I'm going to, I have, because I'm old, I got a paper copy I'm going to read, but uh just so you guys can get the aesthetic and the feel of of the Matt Walsh hit piece, I'll I'll, uh, I'll do this. Let's see. Uh, oh, Streamyard changed some of its interface. Okay, so here is here's what it looks like. This is over on Media Matters. Now you can tell right away Media Matters. Uh, they don't pretend, I don't think they pretend even to be objective. I mean, right at the top uh, up here, they've got, you know, Mar-a-Lago search, January 6th attack. <laughs> like, the, the, they've made special spots for them. Take action. So uh, I don't think they pretend to be uh, objective. Anyway, here we go. Matt Walsh's sordid history as a radio host. Exposed! <sighs> now, uh, I want, there's a caveat to this, uh, and one of my caveats is um, I'm not like I'm not a Matt Walsh sycophant. I do like like what is a woman was pretty funny. I like a lot of the stuff he does, so I'm not like anti Matt Walsh either. But I don't always agree with him. Um, he's not, you know, I'm not on the right in in the sense that he is. He has the phrase, and I think they mentioned it in this article. He's got the phrase theocratic fascist in his Twitter header. Now, I'm not going to judge him by that because I don't know him well enough to know whether that's a joke because he is also funny and and comedic at times. So 
if it isn't a joke, not really my thing. And it is a concern of mine that the right wants to kind of fight over the the gun in the room, right? They want to fight over who wields the gun in the room, whereas I want to just get rid of the gun in the room. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's a struggle between the left and the right to be authoritarian in their own way. And I think the real struggle is between people who don't want any authoritarianism and the people who want some kind of authoritarianism. I don't know where he actually is on that spectrum. I do know he fights the woke stuff pretty well. Uh, he does a great job fighting the gender stuff. I don't, I don't actually know his politics. Well. So I don't know if he means that facetiously tongue in cheek just to trigger people or he really views himself as a theocratic fascist, whatever that is. I can imagine it's, I guess a theocracy is what he wants. Um, I don't know. So I'm not going to judge that, but you know, there's stuff like that where I'm like, I don't certainly don't like it if he means it. Um, all right. Nevertheless, <laughs> this hit piece, there's a lot to learn in this hit piece, not about Matt Walsh. Um, okay. As I said, the title is Matt Walsh's sordid history as a radio host exposed. Now, first, before we even start, I just like really generally hit pieces in general are just ad hominem attacks, right? And he's been a target. I think he's been more of a target since he was on uh, Dr. Phil. He did a great job on Dr. Phil uh, asking trans activists what a woman was and demonstrating how circular their thinking was and their um, lack of logic. Um, let's see. Uh, someone says, dissident agnostic says, um, you know, put it on the screen. Why is Matt reluctant to talk about the Jewish contribution to gender ideology? I don't know. You'll have to ask Matt. I don't, I don't know that there was a Jewish contribution, um, other than, uh, a lot of Jews tend to be left leaning. Um, but that's a, that's a question for Matt. I don't know. All right. So, um, so yeah, he's been popular since he's been rising in popularity since Dr. Phil. And I think whenever you're going to look at a hit piece, you have to ask yourself, why is someone writing a hit piece? I mean, this thing is like, it's like 20 pages. This is not a tweet, right? Um, it's not a short comment. Like we all make short comments about people we don't like. Uh, in fact, I'll probably make one about Maxine Waters later in the show, <laughs> like AOC and whatever, you know, I think Dave Rubin said a naughty word about, uh, who was it? It wasn't Ayanna Presley. It was Ayanna Presley. It was um, Rashida Tlaib, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, we make comments like that. Comments aren't arguments. They're just short comments. They're like an emotional summary. You might be like, oh, you know, he's a wanker if you're British, I guess. <laughs> right? That's just a comment. But that's, that's much different than writing 20 pages about like, like it's really, when you do that, when you write a hit piece, it's really, really, really important to you that, uh, other people also agree with your assessment of the person. Like it's a weird thing to do. Um, it's not just a comment. It's a, it's it's a weird thing to do. Um, so why would they do it? Uh, and and we just need to keep this in mind. Um, I think Matt's effective in the culture war. I think he's very effective. Uh, the his his whole what is a woman thing is extremely effective. He's becoming um, he's becoming. Uh, quite influential. And I think a lot of normal people who don't read um, 
you know, read the daily, uh, daily wire, or, you know, or you're just not, not involved in politics. They see that kind of stuff. They see him on Dr. Phil and they're like, that makes sense. This guy's making sense. Um, so he's very effective. And when you have someone very effective and you fail in the arena of ideas, and I think the Dr. Phil episode is a great example. You can see the failure, right? It's like circular definition, circular definition, circular definition. Like anyone who's uh, semi-reasonable or or <laughs> willing to actually think rationally sees that conversation and, and goes, these people are kind of crazy. Matt's making a really good point. And so he's effective. They don't have the ideas to fight him. So um, if they don't have the ideas to fight him, they need to just attack him directly that's the reason for a hit piece a reason for the hit piece is uh a hit piece in and of itself just the existence of a hit piece is a confession it's an intellectual confession by the author or in this case i think it was multiple authors no one author with with research <laughs> from three people uh it's a, it's an intellectual confession of an inability to argue the points that's why you write a hit piece um, which is not it's not the same. That's why it's not the same as a throwaway comment. A throwaway comment like so and so is is blankety blank, and you know so and so is a wanker. That's not an intellectual confession. That's just you know a quick assessment. This is a confession. This is like I had twenty pages to say something about him, and all I can do is call him a jerk, <laughs> right? Worse, worse, which we'll talk about. I would have actually liked to see um, some actual arguments against some of the things he's made, uh, some of the things he said, because um, I have some in some cases. Uh, but a lot of the stuff he said, I think is pretty unassailable. So, all right, the plan here, uh, we're going to, uh, I'm going to read just the first few paragraphs of this. I'm not going to read you 20 pages because that will, uh, both of, you know, all of us will be annoyed by that. I'm not going to read, I'm going to read the first few paragraphs and then I'm going to, um, and, and I'm going to summarize the, the kind of form. There's like four main accusations against him and what the evidence is here. Um, and then we're going to discuss the tactics that are used in this hit piece and other hit pieces um, and why those tactics are kind of inherently dishonest. Of course, they're inherently dishonest because ad hominem is an inherently dishonest form of argumentation. If it's done, I mean, sometimes people do it, you know, spur of the moment, like, ah, he's a jerk. But like, if it's done like this in a very uh, conscious, <laughs> arduous way, it's dishonest. Um and by the way, I also just quick note, the accusations aren't the tactics. Those are two separate things, right? You might think that you might, I would say maybe naively think that uh, how it works is they're sitting around in, I don't know where uh, leftists, maybe at a yoga, at the coffee shop across from the yoga studio. I don't know. They're sitting around and they run across some things he's done and they're like, wow, this guy's worthy of criticism. Uh, oh, when I'm criticizing, I should use these tactics. I suspect it's often the other way around, which is I know these tactics are effective and I want to employ them. Now I'm going to go hunt through this guy's history to identify anything that I might be able to exploit using these tactics. So, you know, I can't guarantee. I don't know if that's actually what uh, this person did, Ari Drennan but I wouldn't be surprised. Okay, let's read the first couple, just the first, literally, first few paragraphs, couple paragraphs. 
Um, because by the way, they do a good job summarizing in the beginning here. From early 2010 through August 1st, 2011, Matt Walsh co-hosted a radio show called The Matt and Crank Program, along with Andrew Crank Murr at WZBH The Beach, 93.5 FM, based in Georgetown, Delaware. So <laughs> uh, I'm not going to comment on all this stuff, but I can't help this one. Uh, so they're going to use his previous career as a radio shock jock as evidence that he's a bad guy. That's that's how this starts. Howard Stern would be screwed if they went after him. Like, he used to work on a shock radio show, shock jock on a radio show. Oh, my Oh, my God. What can we find? Probably everything. Um, all right. Let's continue. The show featured all of the worst of Walsh's bluster and bigotry without the production value given to his current work as co as host for the Daily Wire, where he was hired in August 2017. Recently, Walsh has been helping lead a campaign against children's hospitals, <gasps> providing gender-affirming care. Hmm. On August 15th, August 15th, Walsh made the false incendiary claim that these hospitals are, quote, <laughs> butchering, mutilating, and sterilizing their young patients. They, they don't like the way he says that. Uh, the hospitals highlighted by Walsh and others have been inundated with violent threats, threats that the Daily Wire personally dismissed as a hoax before continuing his campaign. <laughs> Can you imagine being the kind of person who reads this and is just nodding on, oh, this is, this is good reporting? As a review of Walsh's commentary for the Matt and Crank program reveals that the pundit has previously praised violent political action, saying that enacting change means that, quote, you have to make people hurt. Holding signs and yelling loudly will not make anyone hurt. The current Daily Wire personality... And What is a Woman Filmmaker, great film, by the way, totally, you should watch it, uh, also claimed that we probably lost our republic after Reconstruction, and that, quote, as the Anglo-Saxons, which were the original Americans, die off, our identity and our culture goes with it. And he performed racist impressions and defended teenage pregnancy and marriage, saying that, quote, at about 16, you're an adult who is mature and can make decisions. It's just recently where all of a sudden we're... <laughs> they don't write this word, retarded, until we're 25. Walsh additionally encouraged subordinates to participate in sexually demeaning stunts, coercing an intern into exposing himself and allowing Walsh to shock him with a stun gun in the ass. That's how this opens. That's how this opens. All right. Like I said, we're not going to read this whole thing. But let's go through the four main accusations, and I'm just going to outline the evidence. I don't want to, you know... I'm not going to ignore the evidence. Greg asks if they follow Olinsky's rules for radicals. Uh, he His rules for radicals don't actually talk about hit pieces so much. Uh, they're really more about activism. But I'm sure they've all read it and they follow those as well. All right. So the first accusation against him is, and they they helpfully like labeled these accusations in... Uh, they have like headers for each one. So the first one, I'll scroll down. There's the first header. Matt Walsh's violent political worldview. Quote, you have to make people hurt. Now, what they cite here, I will give them credit for actually putting original um, content here. Uh, 
they know that no one's going to go watch though. This one's only a minute, but some of them are like, you know, 10, 15 minutes long. They know no one's going to watch them because uh, they do undermine some of the cherry picking sometimes, but they put them in here to look like they're, you know, they, you know, they're, they're presenting, you know, I guess credit. They're, they're giving you the source material. Uh, you're supposed to be too stupid to understand that their summary of the source material is not equal to the source material. All right. So, um, the evidence for this this uh, violent worldview stuff is he's, he gives a speech at a Tea Party rally, plus he does a follow-up conversation, and he observes uh, both correctly and admiringly that the founding fathers were willing to use violence and break laws. He points out that the Tea Party itself was illegal. He points out that they eventually picked up uh, guns and fought, and all of this is true. That's a true observation, and I think we should all be grateful for this. We should all speak admiringly of this because – that's why we're not still British, right? I mean, that's why Meghan Markle is British royalty and not American royalty, um, because someone picked up guns in the late 18th century and fought. So, yes, he was he admires that. He pointed that out. Uh, if I were him, I'd be like, yeah, mea culpa. Um, he then he he then kind of criticized some of the Tea Party members. Some of the stuff's old, right? They're going back. This is in in 2010. He criticizes some Tea Party members for not wanting to do anything more than vote. And he's talking about getting rid of Republicans and Democrats. It almost looks like he's referring to maybe voting independent. He's talking about basically he's he's saying drain the swamp before that was a thing. Um, and he does say you have to make people hurt. That's a line. Now, there's some context left out here uh, around that line. He says things like he gives examples like, well. Uh, the civil rights boycotts. So he's talking about like boycotting is not just marching. It's like actually hurting businesses, actually causing some pain, boycotting, which is legal and nonviolent, by the way. Um, he also suggests that, hey, what would happen if like 10 million Americans just didn't pay their taxes next year? Uh, that's not violent, um, but he's suggesting that. Uh, but it would definitely hurt the exact right people that we would want to hurt. Um, we being anyone who's liberty minded. So, okay. So that's some stuff. So that's one evidence, one piece of evidence they got is this, this speech and follow-up conversation. And that's the kind of stuff he says, uh, like I said, including admiration for the founding fathers using force. Okay. The next thing they use as, uh, evidence here is a tweet on January 6th because they, you know, they got to capitalize on, uh, all the effort that the leftist media has put in around the, the insurrection narrative. So might as well pick a tweet from January 6th. And they say, uh, in this tweet, he says, America is coming apart at the seams. We don't have to admit it, but it's true. Eventually, we will have to talk seriously about secession and national divorce. I've been saying it for years. Maybe the time has finally come. So that's his tweet. And they, this is this is evidence of, of his violent uh, his glorification of violence, of political violence. Now, note, by the way, uh, secession isn't here. Maybe they even have the tweet. I'll scroll down to it. They might even, yeah. Here's, here's the tweet. Secession isn't violence. Divorce isn't violence. <laughs> like, national divorce, secession, that's not the same thing as violence, right? Can you, like, just wrap your head around for a minute. Can you imagine... Um, you die, guy, like you dial nine one one, and uh, they answer, and you're like, "Yes, officer. Um, my wife just said she wanted a divorce. 
right? And they're like, oh my God, we'll be right there. And you know, the next thing you know, the SWAT team comes in and there's guys armed to the teeth. They, they come in guns blazing, shoot your dog, haul her off to jail uh, for attempted murder. <laughs> like divorce isn't violence. National divorce isn't violence. Secession's not violence. So, but that's that's one of their points. That's one of their supporting facts. That's their other supporting fact. So that's that's one of their uh, one of their complaints complaints against him again is this uh, his violent political worldview. The next complaint, number two, the next accusation is they say Matt Walsh defended pregnancy and marriage for teenage girls. Quote. At about 16, you're an adult who is mature and can make decisions. That's what he says. Now, he he's having a conversation about teenage pregnancy generally. And part of what he's doing is he he's in this conversation with his co-host or someone, someone on the show. Um, and he's describing history. He's talking about historically. Historically, humans got pregnant and had babies very early. Many of you, if you're my age, a lot of your grandparents might have had their first child in their teens. Um, that was relatively normal, and certainly great-grandparents. Uh, he actually says the peak for teen pregnancy, he, he, so his point was teen pregnancy is not a new phenomenon. And he says the peak for teen pregnancy was actually 1959. I didn't verify that fact check. I didn't fact check that, I mean. But he says, you know, that's 1957. 1957 is the peak year for uh, teenage pregnancy in America. So, okay. So he's, he's saying that, and he also makes some points factually like, Hey, biological fertility is at a peak in that, that time. And his point here, he has, gets into a big conversation about how, um, society's decided that teens are too young to start a family. And then he, so, so this, he, part of what he does is just kind of some factual historical context. And then he jumps into an opinion and he says, well, I don't think the problem's really teenage pregnancy. It's unwed pregnancy um, because our you know grandparents and great grandparents and, and generations before them they had babies in their teens, but they were married and they stayed together and there was a man around and like that you know his it's he's very kind of arguing for the family and stability in the family and saying it's it's the unwed thing that's the problem, not really the the teenage pregnancy, um, and and he kind of goes on a tirade about we don't we don't make kids behave like responsible adults until they're 27, right? Whereas in the past, it would have been more than 10 years prior to that. Uh, and he talks about how it's dangerous biologically to have kids, your first kids in your thirties. Uh, I think you don't, you're, I think pregnancy is not considered at risk unless it's 35 or after, but so he makes that case. And he, he says several times, like, I'm not saying that I'm encouraging teenage pregnancy. He's saying, you know, unwed teenagers shouldn't get pregnant, but he he is making an argument and suggesting that maybe they should get married young. Maybe people should get married younger. Um, and then he goes on to speculate. He's like, well, he says, this is, you know, it's my, not my argument. It says, there's nothing wrong with a world in which a 17-year-old gets married to another 17-year-old and they start family together, right? Um, not everyone's cut out for college. So he goes into an argument about that. Um, and the, the push for college and how it's not really appropriate for everyone. And he says, look, some people, it is appropriate to go get educated and, and, and spend lots and lots of years of school. But a lot of people could be sufficiently educated to live a happy and productive life much earlier. And they could start having kids earlier and have families earlier and whatever. Um, and he does claim, uh, as this quote says, he does claim that, uh, 
at 16, you are uh, an adult who is mature and can make decisions. And his argument there is we were doing that historically. Why suddenly now? Suddenly now we're not mature enough at 16 when we were for all of human history. Now we're not mature enough to be able to make those decisions. And, and he's very adamant and he pushes this. Um, and like I said, he has a discussion about pushing kids into college and, and pointing out the problems with doing that. Um, there's some legitimacy to this criticism in the sense that uh, he did say these things. That is true. Um, and I still find it a little bit rich uh, coming from people who are pushing genderbred man in kindergarten and forcing young children to talk about anal sex. Uh, I think it's a little bit rich for them to complain that some guys like maybe 16 year olds should be married. Um, <laughs> I, so, okay. <laughs> okay. Media matters. Um, so there's some lack of credibility there. I do also, since we're talking about this, I, you know, I do also want to point out um, he's wrong about something here. And I I, I do want to point that out. He's, he's just wrong. Uh, they, and this is the thing. If you're going to argue with him, I would prefer an article. Media Matters could have argued with him on this point, but they, they can't even do this because they're not capable of that. Probably because the argument I'm about to make, uh, they don't like either because it assumes that biological sex is real and some other things. Um, so they just have to call names to him. Um, you are not, your brain is not developed uh, at 16. Um, <sighs> brain development, your prefrontal cortex is where most of like uh, your inhibition, uh, your, your processing of inhibition, your, like, your ability to kind of not do what you feel like doing, that's in your prefrontal cortex. Your prefrontal cortex is not finished developing until about the age of 25. I think it develops a little bit earlier for women. I think it's like 24 for women and 26 for men. So I, somewhere around there, but like both around 25. Um, your brain development does lag your fecundity, your sexual maturity it you know predates brain development um and that doesn't not make sense like that that makes sense evolutionarily right you 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 don't evolve to have a great productive life in modern society that's not how we evolved so uh it might not be best for an individual to um <laughs> to have their cognitive development lag their sexual maturity that might not be best for an individual but it is good for gene propagation which is the, the drive the primary driving factor behind evolution it's gene propagation so if during your time of peak fertility your inhibition engine isn't done and that develops later after you've been a parent for a little while so you can be a better parent and grandparent uh, evolution's okay with that. Evolution's okay with teenage pregnancy and irresponsible sexual behavior. Evolution likes that in many ways, right? Or, or you know, evolution doesn't care that you want to go to law school or, you know, you want to be a professor uh, and it takes a lot of schooling. Um, so we did not evolve. The, the fact that we evolved to have kids early doesn't mean our brain is developed in in a responsible mature mature way at the same time that's just wrong he's just wrong about that 
Um, and what has happened in the predicament we find ourselves in is that in modern civilization, we now, thankfully, thank you, capitalism, we have a, a level of comfort that asks us, that allows us to sit back, right, and ask questions like, hey, is following our biological pre-programming the best thing we could do as individuals? <laughs> like, what's moral? What's a better way to be, right? In other words, should we do what our genes want, which is what we've been driven to do for most of history? Or now that we have a little higher standard of living and we're not like losing half of our kids by the age of five on the farm and dying at the age of 40, like, should we do what our genes want or or should we have our own plans and and live our lives consciously, right? And I think it's good. I think it's good that we're in this situation as, as uh, modern humans that we're able to say, hey, maybe we want to assert some control over our own lives and not be driven by... Um, biological needs and sustenance survival right now it's fine that we we can make that um you know we, we can make that transition but there's challenges with that and that's what we're facing right um what we want to build for what many of us want to build for ourselves people think about careers or or whatever what they want to build is at odds with their biological drives those things are not compatible um Biological drives aren't morality, <laughs> though. That that's, you know, biological drives have nothing to do with morality. They might have something to do with what people feel is moral, but it has nothing to do with actual morality. Um, and and they don't have anything to do with what we might want for our lives. Really, we might want something that goes against what we feel like when we're sixteen. So, um, you know, an, an example here that's not sexual. Is, is sugar consumption. I think it's I th sugar consumption for me is a great example. Um, back when we were hunter-gatherers, um, uh, we often developed, well, often, I think a, a lot of us developed, <laughs> a lot, large percentage of the human race developed uh, this craving for sugar with no control, no, you know, I don't want any more, I've had enough, because there was not sugar. Sugar was so hard to come by. It's really hard to come by sugar in nature, right? I mean, even the fruit that you see at the store isn't natural. It's been engineered or bred at the very least over, you know, many, 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 many generations of that fruit. A lot of the, even the vegetables that you eat are, aren't like, like, like well, broccoli is not a thing. It didn't occur in nature. It was, it was bred, right? So um, what we could have access to as hunter-gatherers, we, we never had to worry about getting diabetes because we had too much sugar. It wasn't a problem. Now it is much better. It is much better that we get as many calories as 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 we want, or too many calories in the Western world. Um, we can, in the past, we could eat as much as possible without that being at odds with our our biology and how our biology works. But now we have a brand new challenge in the modern world. We can't eat as much sugar as we want because you could go suck down Slurpees all day and die of diabetes within a week or whatever. Maybe not that fast, but like you can totally ruin your health eating sugar. There now you have access that's you did not evolve in, in a world with this much access to sugar. So similarly, you may have evolved to be horny when you're in your teens and pop out kids as early as possible. Uh, that might not be the best way to behave now. And therefore your life goals might be at odds with the biological urges. So uh, 
you know, he, what he's wrong about here is his conflation of biology with morality and his, his brain development assumptions that because you were uh, fertile, your brain must have been developed. That's not true. Uh, it doesn't mean that a 16-year-old is capable of making decisions. In fact, it probably means that a 16-year-old is particularly incapable of making good decisions because genes love that. All right. Next thing they say about him, let's let's scroll down here, is his, his fourth sin. <laughs> Matt Walsh's racist worldview as the Anglo-Saxons, which were the original Americans, die off our identity and our culture goes with it. This is a quote from him, uh, which is, I, it's a correct quote. He did say that. Um, so, okay, so the evidence that they, they present for this. <sighs> By the way, right under this, we should read the sub, the first sentence is, is, first part of the first sentence is revealing. As a radio DJ, Matt Walsh promoted the racist great replacement theory that this is a big part of their argument. Now, um, this is a nuanced one that I don't, I can't really get into completely on the show because it will take, it could take several shows. I wrote a three-part article partly, not all we all about this, but about culture and the difference between uh, moral values and culture and non-moral values and what it means to care about a culture and why you should and why you shouldn't and what aspects matter. Um, I, I did that in the wake of the Christchurch shootings, and then I refreshed it after the Buffalo shootings because both of those shooters uh, were, were worried about the death of Western culture, and I think it's important to understand what that means and what they got wrong, and um, and not you know, and what they get right. Um, but uh, so you can go read that article if you if you want. <laughs> I'm not. Um, but what he's saying here is he values a, quote, Western Anglo-Saxon culture. That's that's a value of his. Uh, and he's pointing out that he points out in this show that there's a long show here um, that this is not any different than any other group. Like if you were Latino valuing Latin culture or if he was Japanese valuing Japan's culture or whatever, everyone would be like, yes, those are valuable cultures. Right. Um, and he's saying, hey, I care about the Anglo-Saxon culture. That, that's his argument. Um, and then he cites some fertility statistics, uh, which, by the way, if you're not aware of them, uh, the Caucasian population is well, well, well below replacement rate for fertility. And, you know, he, he takes pains to say, look, I'm not saying that uh, you should only marry within your race or whatever. Like, I don't care what people want to do. But, but what I am saying is, People should have more kids, and, and specifically because he cares about Anglo-Saxon culture. Six, uh, specifically, they should have more children, right? That goes well with his sixteen-year-olds should get married and have kids. Um, so that that's his argument. They should have more kids. He's worried about the the death, the loss of this culture. He compares it to, um, you know, when animal species are about to go extinct. However, when, you know, throws their arms up in the air and it's like, Oh no, we can't let that happen. He's like, Hey, this is a, this is a culture. This is a people that we don't want to go extinct. And this is, uh, this is what I'm worried is happening. And he cites some statistics and he calls Western, he calls, this is what he says. Western, the Western white race is quote old and impotent. And he says, being that I'm in that group, I don't want to see them die. And I, like I said, his solution is to have, have families. Um, 
if you are interested in this stuff, I'll post, you know what, let me go find the link. I'll post the link. There, there's a lot to tease out about what is meant. Just think about this, trying to find the word culture and then try and argue about why it is or isn't something worth saving. It is or isn't valuable. Um, it, it gets to be a complex topic. So I wrote a bunch about it. I just posted the the link in chat and I'll, for those listening or watching later, I will put it in uh, the show notes, but I'm not going to get into that. But that's his, that's his position on, on that. Um, I, I think it's hard to say that's racist, but that's what they're, um, I mean, in one sense it is, it is racist in the same sense that like, if you're going to argue that caring about any in-group like that, you'd have to say that all, all of it's racist. You could say like it's racist if you're Japanese to care about Japanese and if, and if you're Latino to care about Latin culture. And if you like, if you're going to make the case that all of that is racist, which I could make the case that it's collectivist a little bit. Um, although there's values of, of Anglo-Saxon culture that uh, are unrelated to that. Like, like I said, it's a little nuanced. You could try and make that argument, but of course media matters can't make that argument because they're all about race all the time. So he's basically saying a mild version of what every other uh, affinity group that Media Matters seems to care about says, and that's cited as a fact. And they're and they're saying this is a uh, racist replacement theory thing. That's just not true. Um, but we can, maybe we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, another one of their uh, claims here to support his racism is they say, at other times, Walsh performed racist impressions of black men and then they have to go into this a big long transcript and video of uh he called barack obama elementary school um in the voice of i guess what would technically be called like an urban accent and urban vernacular uh which if you're a racist like media matters automatically means you're black um so he called he called the school uh with that accent and vernacular and his character that he's, you know, he's assuming a character for this phone call, like a kind of like a crank call. Um, he, but, but he was trying to get the school to admit he, he was, he was arguing in his own way about the school applying what he was considering Obama's um, socialist economic policy to grades and arguing for his kid to like, well, you know, he doesn't really want to work too hard. Can we just like, does your school adopt Obama's thing where we just split the grades at the end of the semester? And it was funny. And that's, that was the point of it. So that, that's the evidence. That's the other evidence. And then I'll just read this one paragraph of evidence because it's it's interesting here. Um, they write, since this video, Walsh has said that white supremacists don't exist for the most part. And the great replacement conspiracy theory is just a fact. Walsh has expressed doubt that racism exists and said that, quote, when a white person says that all white people are inherently racist, all he's really done is confess to being personally racist. I love how they're embedding good arguments here with just in a little clip. So leftists who aren't paying attention, but like, hmm, that's an interesting point. Uh, Walsh has also attacked Muslims, deriding them as, quote, easily provoked and suggesting that, quote, every mass attacker is Muslim. One video from the Matt and Crank program shows Walsh wearing a Confederate flag T-shirt. So that's their other evidence that he's racist. So that's the racist evidence. Last piece here. Matt Walsh's, this is their claim. Oh, here, I'll scroll down to the their heading so you can see the heading. Um, by the way, this is, look, they have this entire transcript here 
of him calling the school. They were excited about it. Okay. <laughs> this is my favorite one by far. Matt Walsh's sexually demeaning workplace stunts. Quote, I think we should shock you in the ass. <laughs> so, um, there's the, they, they have this that you can see it if you're watching right now. They've got this video. Intern A versus a stun baton. It's just a funny joke. Um, and it's part of this video series that they did um, with, with their intern. And they, they, they do a bunch of stuff that the, they shock this guy in the butt, in the arm and some other spots too. But, um, and uh, the, the Media Matters describes this, quote, this is a part of a series of, uh, a video series of Walsh, Murr, the intern, and another man called Tater participating in a series of fraternity style challenges sometimes involving sexually suggestive behavior. <laughs> a further video a video available on the old YouTube channel for Matt and Crank showed the intern washing a car in underwear while disco music was playing. Um, and you can see, you can watch these videos. Uh, clearly, it, it's, it's clearly the intern's in on it. This is a, they're trying to be funny. Um, the reason this is my favorite of their complaints is I this complaint, I view it as like, can you imagine you go, imagine you go and you, oh, I'll stop sharing the screen. Imagine you go and you you watch the Three Stooges. <laughs> if you work for Media Matters, you you go and you watch the Three Stooges and you immediately conclude that, uh, you know, Larry and Moe are guilty of workplace violence against Curly. <laughs> like that's that's your conclusion. Oh, I, there, did you see the, the bonk and the, the, the eyes and they, the pie in the face? It's workplace violence. <laughs> like these are guys doing these things together to be funny. Um, that's all they got. That's it. That's everything Media Matters has. Those are all their. Those are all their complaints. Hey Juliet, welcome to chat. So um, those are all their complaints. Let's go through some tactics because I think this is a good. The only reason to even go through this, I don't think you guys should read this article. It's not worth it, but you can if you want. Um, the tactics are interesting because they're all over the place. I mean, almost all of them show up right away in the first few paragraphs, but uh, these are kind of tactics that they, they're they throughout uh, the attack, um, and you see them in hit pieces all over the place, and I think it's important to understand uh, and recognize these. Uh, and these are in no particular order. I actually think they're kind of out of order in terms of like most important and, and common or whatever. But the first one I'm going to go over is um, this. They present people as, and, and granted, remember, they're only doing this to someone they want to attack. They don't do this to people that they want to support. Um, they will present the person as static, <clears throat> right? Uh, they will present Matt Walsh as he is anything that he's ever been. Specifically, he's the worst of anything he's ever been, right? Um, there's no uh, there's no room for humans to change. So they'll hunt through ten years of history, or ten more than ten years, I think, in this case of history, um, and they'll look for something they can use as evidence that this person is quote bad. Uh, and obviously, in reality, humans aren't static. Um, you know, one way I like to think about humans. Uh, and our like sense of identity, like who we are, is really more as a process than a, a thing, right? Because we're constantly replacing cells, even all your your brain cells and your skin cells. Like things are constantly being regenerated, and we're constantly learning every time we 
learn a new piece of information or have a new experience. We're kind of constantly evolving. You're no one's really the same person that they were 10 years ago. Um, but, uh, but we can kind of identify with a process, um, that this is, this is our approach to how we, we change. Um, and some people is, some people's approach is to resist changing at all, which doesn't work. Uh, but humans aren't static. They are this, they are this kind of process. So you should expect to see growth. Um, and often you expect to see kind of increased nuance as they get older, because they're drinking in the complexity of the world. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you might, they might be fundamental changes, but there can be fundamental changes to morals or values. Um, and for much of this analysis, we're talking about a guy who was in his mid twenties. Um, I don't know how, maybe even early, depending on how far they went back, but mid twenties, we'll say, uh, for uh, 25 for, for a lot of this. And, you know, anyone who's grown up recognizes that the person, especially guys, the guy you were at 25 is, is often very different than the guy you were in at 35, 36, um, settled down, married kids, your dad, like things do change. Um, so there's no, there's no room for change. They'll, they'll present people as static things. Um, and, uh, you know, this ignores this kind of process, uh, that I think is super important in evaluating people. Um, like when I think about, I've, I've said this before that I, and, and I haven't used this exact terminology, but I've said, you know, I, I, I didn't marry conclusions. Um, I tried to marry the process of arriving at conclusions that, which makes it easier to change my mind. If, if someone uses the, the process and demonstrates that I'm wrong, I don't have to feel like I'm abandoning myself by changing my mind about something because, um, the process is, is important. And so for me, like part of that process is trying to, you know, facing facts, thinking and not evading. Uh, oftentimes, you know, something uncomfortable comes up and you want to evade it and move on. Uh, I'm not perfect at that, but like, that's my goal. Uh, I try and use reason, non-contradictory identification, right. Uh, to integrate new knowledge and, and new information into, uh, in a hierarchy and a model for the world. And, and, and I strive for that intellectual integrity and I try and shun disintegration there. And that process means that I, I probably will change over time because I learn new things or I understand things better or whatever. But they they ignore that. So that their first thing that they do is say, you are the person you've always been. Um, you're static. Something you did 10 years ago is who you are now. The second thing they do is they... Uh, <laughs> I can't believe how they get away with this. It's amazing that they get away with this so often. They conflate humor with serious argumentation. And they do it all the time. Um, and, you know, humor, like any kind of art form, has a unique relationship to truth. Um, one of my favorite lines, there's lots of my favorite lines from V for Vendetta. It's one of my favorite movies. I watch it every November 5th, which is coming up. Um, but one of my favorite lines is Evie Hammond says, she's talking about her father, and she says that her dad used to say, uh, that quote, artists use lies to tell the truth while politicians use them to cover the truth up. Uh, humor, humor does involve, um, a deception or misrepresentation. It's not an, uh, it's not like a, it's not a straightforward, clear argument. It's a, it's a, um, a fiction. It's a construction in order to get at something, uh, in order to make a point often in order to, to elicit, uh, to open you up emotionally to hearing something. Um, 
so you know people who are comedians they push the boundaries uh the boundaries of propriety they go to extremes intentionally um sometimes they apply hyperbole to stereotypes right which i think can help stereotypes from becoming actually ridiculous because you can point out how ridiculous they can be um that can be funny right uh there was that i don't know if probably you're mostly old enough to remember jeff, jeff foxworthy i don't know if he's still around but he was a comedian he would he his whole career was based on basically one stereotype which is was the stereotype around rednecks or all the different aspects of, of redneck stereotypes i guess is a better way to put it but you know he would stand up on stage and say uh if you've if you've ever cut your grass and found a car right you might be a redneck um what uh if you're if your dad walks you to school because you're in the same grade right if you're ever too drunk to fish um like so he takes all those kind of stereotypes and and obviously makes jokes out of them um so I, that you know that's what comedy does um a quick note on on stereotypes uh i think they have a bad rap uh they are they are caricatures of of people but they're not baseless caricatures um they are they're mental hyperbolic shortcuts uh and the reason that you know that they're not arbitrary and that they're based on reality is there are no stereotypes for jewish sprinters for example right like hmm. uh those don't exist and the the danger with stereotypes isn't their existence it's it's when they replace the consideration of facts when the consideration of facts is actually warranted so when you apply them to individuals right if i applied stereotypes to my to individuals i would say well i'm never going to let my wife drive because she's an asian woman um but my wife happens to be a better driver than i am because i'm crazy uh so like i should let my wife drive uh it doesn't mean that there's not some stereotype there's not doesn't mean that there's no validity to that stereotype and i've sworn plenty at asian women driving cars around the bay area um you know the the other the other time when it's a problem is when you you kind of rely on the stereotype um without questioning it in, in order to take some meaningful action so if you're an actuary at an insurance company and you're like well i'm going to charge asian women more for insurance uh that's obviously inappropriate. You need to look at data and probably you're not going to make race-based actuarial decisions. Although if it really was correlated, you might, I don't know. I probably can't, it's probably illegal. Um, but so, you, you know, they shouldn't get in, in the way of how you treat people uh, in, in, in ways that matter, but they're not, they don't come from nowhere. They're not nothing. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I'm bringing all that up because one of the things he did was this quote, racist impression of a black man right right you know now obviously part of what he's doing here he was doing this for humor he was doing this for humor um and so they're but they're forgetting that they're conflating they're like pretending that the humor in the situation doesn't exist so they're they're gonna say you were making fun you're you're making fun of a black guy you're like that wasn't what he was doing right he was aiming at making fun of socialism and trying to point out the ridiculousness of it when applied to grades. And frankly, he probably needed to speak uh, in uh, a more urban way to, to kind of disarm the person on the other end of the phone. Because if he sounded like Matt Walsh calling, um, 
even if they don't know who Matt Walsh was at the time, right? He sounded like some, you know, <laughs> normie calling and pushing them towards uh, asking if grades can be distributed, uh, you know, in a communist way. <laughs> they probably, they would probably not have patience for him. But if he presents himself in a certain way, which he did, uh, they they exhibited more patience than they might have if he just you know straightforwardly asked the question. So he was assuming a character. He was assuming a character that would hopefully let their guard down, the person on the other phone, let have them their guard let down, and get them to to respond to him. Um, so they're you know they're they're pretending that humor doesn't exist, and sometimes that humor can be satire, right? Um, and the and media matters and the left in particular uh, are really good at missing satire. Um, they miss it all the time when they want to, uh, when they want to. They don't miss it if it if it's done on their side. Oh, that was just satire. Uh, but they they're really good at missing it. Sometimes the right misses. Um, sometimes the right misses satire. Uh, an example I'll give is there was a song uh, a year or two ago. Uh, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus did a song about we're coming for your children. Um, you know, we're here to indoctrinate your children or whatever. Now, there's some nuance here. It was satire. They intended it as satire. And I think a lot of people just didn't realize that. Now, nuance here is historically, uh, the gay community probably wasn't really doing a lot of in in indoctrination. I don't I didn't study it. I was young at the time, but that, they weren't like out trying to indoctrinate your kids. But a lot of the the radical right or the religious right, they thought that they were, and that was a big scare. And then after that, people stopped worrying about that because it was like, oh, they're not really doing that. They're just, you know, they, we went through this phase of like, they just want to be like everyone else in the room. Okay. Um, but then, uh, especially with the addition of the extra letters and the kind of transition from uh, the gay and lesbian community to this broader kind of leftist um, critical theory-based community, um, tearing down definitions and uh with a kind of a, a broader social agenda this lgd lgbtq plus aaip two-spirit blah 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 stuff like they actually did start to do the thing that in the 80s the religious right was worried about they actually did start to introduce genderbred kids and blah 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 and let's have drag story hour and drag queen story hour and so like they actually did start to do stuff with kids and try and indoctrinate kids so like they started to do that and then after they started to do that then the gay men's choir in san francisco satirized a three-decade-old concern that wasn't shouldn't have been a concern at the time probably uh it was probably unfounded then but it's not unfounded anymore um so it's kind of weird it's a weird situation anyway uh, a lot of people on the right didn't even recognize that it was intended as satire and they mixed the they missed the complexity of that so you know humor conflating humor with, uh, you know, with actual serious points and argumentation. So um, people are static is number one. Complaining humor is number two. Um, an obvious one is double standards. Uh, for people that are their targets, they obviously they scandalize everything. Um, they interpret every action or statement in the most ignoble way possible. Right. He says things like Matt will say something like you have to make people hurt. And he'll reference that the founding fathers picked up guns. And what will they say? 
They'll say, well, he's glorifying violence. Now, in reality, what was he even, I mean, he might've been asking when violence is permissible, which is a decent question to ask, by the way. Um, and doesn't make you a violent person. It doesn't mean you're glorifying it. Um, but that's what he does. And they just interpret all of it in the worst way possible, in the most ignoble way possible. They'll also drop context. So one of the things they'll do, you know, one of their double standards is they'll drop context for you if they, if you're their target. So um, any any context that might mitigate their portrayal of you. So he did reference the civil rights boycott. They didn't mention it in the article. It was in the video, but they didn't mention it in the article. He was talking about what if 10 million people didn't pay their taxes. They didn't mention that either. They just talked about his reference to the founding fathers, which kind of sandwiched to this, and then and and the violence of the founding fathers, and then you know used some ellipses and then stuck his his words in the middle that he said about we need to hurt people. So you know they just dropped the context. Uh, there's obviously no consideration for any alternative you know interpretations, um, and because they view people as static, anything they he says here that they conclude this is, this is an indictment of the person as such. Um, and another thing they do that's a double standard here is they they hold people responsible for the behavior of others. So um, one, one quote in this article, they say, um, hospital, this is, uh, this is after his, I, I read this, this is, this is when they're talking about his claims about, um, quote, gender affirming care, uh, and his, his war on the hospitals here. They say the hospitals highlighted by Walsh and others have been inundated with violent threats, right? They also make this case about, you see this with Trump in January 6th all the time. This like he, Trump's responsible for the behavior of the people that, the few people that actually did anything violent. Um, Walsh's behavior is responsible for these violent threats, right? Milo Yiannopoulos was responsible for Leslie Jones getting, uh, her feelings hurt on Twitter. Justifiably Stupid says, comic, comedy and magic are identical crafts. I like that analogy. I like the analogy of magic um, as a, is like writers um, being magicians um, and especially fiction writers. Uh, I think that's a, I think it's a cool analogy. So, so anyway, so that's that's the standard for a target. They're going to scandalize this target and do all that. The, the other half of that double, double standard is um, if you're their ally, to use their word, um, they'll interpret every possible action, anything you do in the noblest way possible. And I said I was going to make fun of Maxine Waters or say something mean about her. Um, look, in in there's there's a bill that Marjorie Taylor Greene actually introduced. <laughs> uh to kick Maxine Waters out, I think. Um, Maxine Waters is the, I, she wins the distinction of the lowest IQ in Congress, as far as I can tell. I'm not sure. There might be some new additions that are, but she's a, she is a tool. Um, so anyway, so here's some things from this bill uh, that, uh, I, it's not gonna go anywhere, but proposing to kick her out. Um, in the wake of the Rodney King riots in May 1992, Representative Waters said, quote, if you call it a riot, it sounds like it was just a bunch of crazy people who went out and did bad things for no reason. I maintain it was somewhat understandable, if not acceptable. So I call it a rebellion. In October 2017, she told the crowd at an LGBTQ youth gala, quote, with this kind of inspiration, I will go out and take out Trump tonight. Take Trump out tonight. I don't think she meant take him out to dinner. 
Um, on June 23rd, 2018, she said, she told the crowd, if you see anybody from President Trump's cabinet, if you see anybody in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd and you push back on them and you tell them that they are not welcome anymore anywhere. On September 8th, 2018, she told the crowd of her supporters in Los Angeles, quote, I did not threaten Trump constituents and supporters. I mean, I do that all the time, but I didn't do it that time. Uh, on April 17th, 2021, she told violent protesters, quote, we've got to stay on the street and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they know we mean business. Now, can you, can you imagine if Matt Walsh said this kind of stuff? Uh, so they will, so, you know, one of their interpretations, so in the one case, they'll interpret everything in the worst way. If it's their ally, they'll interpret it in the best way. She didn't mean any of this. It was all she just meant peaceful protest. And they'll drop context um, that might suggest any untoward intent. They drop context when they're attacking people. They'll drop it for their allies, but only to help their allies. So remember, when she's saying we've got to you know, stay on the street and get more active and get more confrontational, she's saying this. Uh, this is in April 17th, 2021. So this is right. This is the you know this is after what, eight eight months or so after Kenosha. This is after a, a a whole bunch of riots in cities all around Minneapolis. Actually, I think hit near record homicide rates in 2021 when she's speaking. There are violent protests happening all over the place. People burning, uh, looting, hurting other people, and that's what she has to say to the violent protesters. Um, for for their allies, their allies are viewed as non-static. Their past sins are whitewashed right? They're willing to say that a person has changed or, or grown or, or they'll just ignore anything. Um, one of the, my favorite ones here is, is, um, Hillary Clinton's friendship with Robert Byrd, right? Um, now Robert Byrd, a lot, there's a rumor going around that Robert Byrd was a grand wizard of the KKK. And I wanted, before I said that, I knew he was involved with the KKK. I remember having read, read that, but I, I wanted to double check. <laughs> I did the fact check. And of course, the fact checkers were like, false. But <laughs> he was not a grand wizard of the KKK. Bird was not a grand wizard of the Klan. He was, however, a former organizer and member. <laughs> so he's like a mini. He wasn't a grand wizard. He was like a kind of okay, mediocre wizard. I don't know. He was like a medium wizard. Um, so anyway, look, she's friends with him. Obama went to his funeral. They, she like she had a really close relationship with him. We whitewash him. I mean, he's, he's in Congress. We let let that go. We don't talk about that past. Um, they'll dismiss any suggestions of malintent by any of their allies. And of course, their allies aren't held responsible for the behavior of anyone. I mean, just of anyone else. I mean, look at the um, look at the Maxine Water stuff, right? Just not responsible. No one says she's responsible for the riots. I mean, well, they don't. So that's the third kind of tactic. By the way, G-Man says, uh, ironically, Matt Walsh did a show discussing the members of the San Francisco men's chorus who have been charged for sex crimes. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. I, they they presented it in... Um, their intent was satirical. But that's why I'm saying it's a little bit nuanced because even though it's satirical... <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right.
Number four, they will use ad hominem framing to attack people and they'll present them as intellectual barbarians outside of the debate. The person, the reason for this is they don't, they don't want to get into the debate. They can't debate. So they have to present them as um, uh, like a pariah. They have to be outside of the debate arena. So um, they'll never seriously, you'll see that in this entire 20 pages, they never seriously engaged and considered the merits of any of his positions. Right. I, and I briefly touched on the one about 16 year olds, but like, at least I'm talking like, Oh, this is the point he made. This is where I disagree. Right. They, there's none of that here. There's no disagreement with any of it. There's no, there's no counterpoint. There's not like he's wrong about this. Cause blah, blah, blah. they don't engage in that. Um, they just, they just, uh, they use language to present it as if they shouldn't need to. This is a false incendiary claim. Are they going to say why or how or justify that? No. They paint him as like this immature frat boy. Um, their, their goal is to make sure that the target to you when you're reading it, they want you to feel like the target doesn't qualify to be on the debate stage at all. Right? Right? I mean, look at how they started. It's the worst of Walsh's bluster and bigotry without the production value given to his current work as a host for the Daily Wire, right? The, the implication here is he's all style. There's no substance. They don't say, you know, he makes these arguments, but here's why he's wrong. No, he's just all, he's like a frat boy, a blustering, bigoted frat boy who just, he's all production value from the Daily Wire, right? So you don't have to engage with him. And it's a good thing too, because they don't know how to engage with him intellectually. They can't, because he would win. Um, so they, you know, they'll just paint him as like this emotional, hateful, paranoid extremist person or any of their targets. Look at what they did to Trump. How many times have you heard the word unhinged in relation to Trump? <laughs> We're like, oh, he's unhinged. Yeah, that's because you don't have to argue with him. Right? You don't argue with a crazy person. So just call him crazy and then you're done. So their goal here, their goal here is one, to get you to conclude that you don't need to listen to this person. Um if you honestly believe someone is just in a, cra a crazy, emotional, ranting person, then it's a waste of your time. Don't bother listening. And the second thing that they're trying to do here is um, they want to clothe him in this reputational miasma, right? They want you to not only dismiss him out of hand because it doesn't he doesn't have anything to say, but also they want you to be like uh, timid about treating him seriously in any way or even considering him they they want you to feel like well i don't want to get his stink on me by engaging with him i can't i don't want to debate him i don't want to read his stuff or engage with it intellectually because they they've put this stench around him so much i don't want to get contaminated right so that's that's their goal um in and how why they use this kind of language paranoid and crazy and he's a bigot and bluster and blah blah like they want you to be afraid to associate with him in any way, even if it's just in, like he's not allowed on the debate stage. Um, the fifth, one of the fifth uh, uh, tactics here that they use is, and this one is a little bit more subtle, and I think a lot of people make this mistake. They conflate description with proscription. And they put a prohibition on on contemplation. They, assertions like the assertion is what they want. They don't want contemplation. I'll explain this. So it's description versus proscription. Um, one of those description is a statement um, about 
how things are. Now you might be wrong, but like you're attempting to just state how I think this is how things are right now, right? Um, that's descriptive statements are amoral, right? You can say teenage pregnancy hit its peak in 1957. You're not endorsing teenage pregnancy when you say that. I mean, he might have been wanting teenage marriage, but like it's not a moral statement. You're just trying to say this is what's going on. Humans have this response. Okay. Right. That's just descriptive. Proscriptive statements are kind of moral endor endorsements. This is what we should do. This is what I prescribe. This is what we should do. Right. So he might say descriptively, peak teenage pregnancy was 1957. He might say proscriptively, we should have more babies. Right. Um, but he, they also do this this um, ban on kind of contemplation, because um, he also kind of contemplated, you know, like, well, what would be if there was a world where people got married at seventeen? I, I don't think anything would be wrong with that. Like, it's a little bit prescriptive that thing, but it's also a little bit speculative. Um, but you see this prohibition on contemplation all the time. Um, so let me let me give you an example about like what I mean by this. Let's say you had the assertion like uh, you were trying to argue, or I, I'll say, I'll I'll play this role because I would argue this. We should end the war on drugs. That would be my argument. Now, you're not sure. All right? Let's assume you're not sure that I'm right about that. You, you're not on my side necessarily. But you're open, you're wanting to consider it. So you're going to contemplate this. And contemplating involves speculation. And you might say, during a discussion, you might say, well, what would happen if we ended the war on drugs? And then you might you might list some pros and you might list some cons. You'd be like, well, we would, you know, we wouldn't have to spend money in the DEA, but I'm worried about these cons and blah, blah, blah. Like, um, you know, you get that. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of who would build the roads discussion when libertarians. But like when you're contemplating, you're thinking out loud and you're talking about both things um, and you're just you're just speculating. And often what the what what the left doesn't like in in targets and people are going after is they will exploit moments of speculation on this show on many shows often sometimes I've got a well formed thought well formed argument I'm I'm presenting it um, doesn't mean I wouldn't change later but um, you know I'm, I'm sometimes that but sometimes I'm speculating sometimes I'm going well you know what about this what about that I think. This might be true. Um, holding people accountable for contemplating things and 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 considering contemplation a sin uh, is one of the most anti-intellectual, barbaric things you can do, and it's done uh, all of the time here. Okay, so number six, last one, the last tactic I'm going to go through. There's probably more tactics. These are the ones I noticed. Um, they will have... Uh, <laughs> they'll drum up a lot of outrage at like a denuanced position or association with something. So if you veer, if the target veers towards any controversial issue, uh, this is when they'll strike. So in his case, in Matt's case, let's just look at a couple, let's look at a few examples. Um, one, he had this, he had this tweet where he said, people at this point just assume that every mass attacker is Muslim. Liberals call that prejudice. The rest of us call it observant. That's one tweet. He also had a couple tweets about the NFL. 
uh, and well, not <laughs> about racism, I guess, but he says, one of them is when America oppresses racial minorities, they become presidents and NFL quarterbacks. We're really bad at this, apparently. Uh, by the way, sometimes one of the things that we're talking about, like I'll say this is a tactic, but there's like two or three tactics involved. He's also, you know, being funny a little bit, using humor sometimes, and they don't. That's also involved here. Um, another quote about the NHL, another tweet here about the NFL is, uh, he says. So inspirational to hear about oppression from a mediocre, semi-literate imbecile who makes millions of dollars throwing a ball around. I assume that's the NFL. Another example where he, he came close to something controversial was apparently he wore a Confederate flag 10 years ago or whatever. So what do they do? When you steer close to something, they'll remove all nuance from what you're saying and they'll ascribe the the worst possible meaning to the denuanced thing. So the tweet about mass attackers, you know, people just assume that every mass attacker is Muslim. The tweet goes from this observational thing about a statistical correlation to him suggesting that they're all Muslim. That's what he they accused him of. Now, he wasn't actually suggesting that they're all Muslim. He was suggesting that enough of them are Muslim so that it would warrant a general assumption. There's a nuance there. They deleted it because it's much better to say he just suggests that they're all Muslim, right? Um, you know, if I were to say, I just assume that basketball players are tall because I'm observant, which is kind of the equivalent to what he was saying, that doesn't mean I'm suggesting that all basketball players are tall. Some of them aren't. Um, but I'm suggesting that there's a strong correlation and you might you might do well to assume or to, uh, yeah, you might do well to assume that a basketball player is tall until you find out other information. <laughs> um, the other tweet, the, the tweets about the, the racial minorities oppression becoming presidents in, in NFL and the semi-literate imbecile. Um, look, in those tweets, what he's actually doing is he's pushing back on the narrative that suddenly, post around 2010 or something, we're at crisis level racism in America, right? Things seem to be getting better in the 80s and 90s, and suddenly it's at a crisis. And he's he's using these tweets to point out that actually uh, America is still a land where people of any race can and any ethnicity can succeed, um, you know, regardless of their background. That's what he's using the tweets to point out. So. He points that out in these tweets, and what do they condense it to? What do they denuance it to? They say, well, he's expressed doubt that racism exists. Now, first of all, uh, remember we talked about contemplation being a bad thing for them? They don't like contemplation. He's not allowed to express doubt. He has to just have assertions, and they must be leftist assertions. And if he expresses doubt about leftist assertions, that's wrong. Now, also, he wasn't expressing doubt that racism exists. He was expressing doubt that the all-encompassing catastrophe that the left has fetishized, literally fetishized, uh, is true. He's expressing doubt about that, right? He's expressing doubt about racism as this overarching meta-narrative that can be used to explain literally everything from crime to Harvard admissions to math to tardiness. Like, that's what he's, that's what he's expressing doubt over. Not that it exists. Right, so they denuanced it um, and then misrepresented it.
and obviously the wearing of the Confederate flag, right? They like that just they're they're just implying like, oh, well, that means he supports slavery. Like that's what, oh, he's Confederate flag, right? Um, maybe he likes Dukes of Hazard. All right, so that's the Matt Walsh. That was the Matt Walsh hit piece. Feel free to go read it yourself if you want to. I will. Uh, I'll, I'll post a link to it in the in the show notes. But you don't need to. Um, but just keep it. Look, I, you know the the six things that I pointed out, and you know maybe not most elegantly, but the six things that I kind of noticed the tactics are. I'm just going to go over them so you can keep them in your mind when you see this kind of stuff. Um, they treat the people as static, right? This person is whatever they always have been. They conflate humor with serious uh, argumentations. They just, they, humor's not a thing if they don't want it to be. Remember, all these tactics are only applied to their side, right? They've got double standards, right, where they scandalize, uh, you know, interpret everything as, as wrong, and they ignore context that's exonerating and all that kind of stuff. On the one hand, on the other hand, they ignore context that would be damning and they interpret everything as the most noble thing possible. Um, the, the fourth one is they like, they, they do this framing of, of putting this person outside the realm of debate. You don't need to debate with them. You should be afraid to debate with them. They're kind of, they don't belong in polite societies. Don't interact with them. Don't, don't bother. They're, he's a crazy person. Um, they conflate description with proscription as we talked about. Um, Right when someone's describing something, like he thinks that blah blah blah. No, he's just saying how he thinks things are, and they really shun this contemplation. They want they don't like he's he's questioning something. Yeah, because smart, rational, honest people question things. <laughs> Only the evil people don't question anything. Like you're the problem if you don't question anything. And the last thing was I just said they they kind of take these positions, denuance them, and then express outrage at them. So those are the six things. Enjoy if you want to go take a look at it. All right. Rib Rascal says, I think it's a mistake to underestimate Maxine Waters' intelligence. I don't think it's possible. All right. <laughs> she must be doing, well, I mean, in fairness, she must be doing something like she's she's able to convince people to vote for her. So uh, I want to talk briefly uh, at the end of the show here about um, someone, someone in Discord. I, I don't even know how to say this. L-E-H-N-J. How would you pronounce that? Lenge. Lenge in Discord um, was writing, was 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 mentioning the Jones Act. And I want to I want to talk about it because it's in the news a little bit right now. It's important to just there's a there's another kind of lesson to be learned here, another example um, of <sighs> government uh, screwing stuff, <laughs> screwing stuff up, uh, messing in the free market in, in, in one of these ways that actually a lot of the reason I'm, this one's interesting is it's um, a lot of populists are very into protectionism. Like, I want made in America. There should be tariffs and blah blah blah. Like, they're very into protectionism and that kind of stuff. And this is a protectionist act. So, the Jones Act is uh, it's actually the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, um, and uh, this is a federal statute that requires that ships that are delivering goods between U.S. ports, so like L.A. to San Francisco or whatever, right? Um, 
those ships must be made in America, owned by American companies. Uh, the crew's got to be American. It's got to be all American. Um, and there's actually less than 100 of these ships uh, around that that can do this. Because um, obviously that's a much smaller market than international delivery. Uh, so there's not a huge market there. And uh, this is this has been in the news because of Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico was hit by Hurricane Fiona before Ian hit Florida. Puerto Rico uh, had had Fiona hit it, and one of the issues is there are there are people in Puerto Rico who obviously are without power. Um, like I don't mean in the leftist sense i mean electricity <laughs> like they're without power they have no electricity um and what do you do when you have no electricity you got to run a hospital or a school or your refrigerator or whatever well you, you use a generator often and the problem is they are running out of fuel for their generators and this jones act became an issue because there's plenty of ships traveling internationally that are carrying fuel, but they're not allowed to make multiple stops in U.S. ports. So if they stop at a port in Florida, they can't like then go to they can't stop at a port in Florida and, you know, and then bring some of their fuel over to um, Puerto Rico or they can't stop in Texas and pick up some fuel and bring it to Puerto Rico on their way somewhere else. Like they can't they can't make they can't. Well, I just that maybe they could, but they can't do two stops in the U.S. So there's ships sitting around that have like, they could deliver stuff to Puerto Rico, but they're not allowed to because they've already stopped in a port <laughs> in the U.S. So their next destination has to be a port somewhere else. Um, and that means they can't deliver stuff to Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico is U.S. territory. And uh, so this, this has been an issue. And... Oddly enough, the Department of Homeland Security is now somehow involved in waivers to this act because why not? Hey, let's have let's make a giant bloated agency after 9-11 and then give them permission to <laughs> make like make them in charge of waivers of the Jones Act. Anyway, um, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas uh, approved a temporary and targeted waiver the other day to allow one ship. <laughs> when they say temporary and targeted, they mean it. One ship was allowed to deliver fuel to Puerto Rico for generators. And of course, the grifters at the American, American Maritime Partnership, uh, which is basically like a government monopoly, right? So if you imagine if you're, if you're one of the less than 100 ships and you're part of those companies, you've got like a little cartel that's a government-sanctioned monopoly cartel. It's protecting you from competition for anyone else. Um, so, you know, you're grifters. So the, the AMP president was complaining even about the one ship. He's like, this stunt by a foreign oil company show up, showing up unannounced in Puerto Rico while on its way overseas, hoping to let, sell its fuel at a premium to Puerto Ricans in need, and thereby triggering a public political rush to judgment is bad precedent. A circumvention of U.S. law and should never be tolerated. American maritime is dedicated to Puerto Rico, and while foreign oil traders seek to line their pockets at the expense of the Puerto Rican people, we will always be committed to our fellow citizens, including our own employees and their families in Puerto Rico. So either that means he's going to start delivering fuel for free, um, or 
It means we love Puerto Rico so much that we just don't want them to be able to buy fuel from anyone else because, um, well, we just love them so much. We want to lock them in our basement so that no one else can have, we want to keep them to ourselves. That's how much we love Puerto Rico. <laughs> that douchebag. Anyway, um, there's a great couple of articles about this in Reason Magazine from uh, Scott Shackford. Uh, I'll post links to those as well in the show notes if you want to read them, but if you're kind of curious. Uh, but I want to just talk about, you know, protectionist acts like the Jones Act. Let's put morality aside for a minute. Um, not something I say on this show very often, but instead of making a moral argument about why you shouldn't use force to prevent someone from parking their ship between, you know, moving between two ports uh, who willingly want the ship to be there. Uh, let's, let's put that aside for a second and let's talk about um, what protectionism like the Jones Act does to America. Because a lot of protectionists are nationalists in the sense that they care about America specifically, which I understand. Um, and so they think it's good for America. So we're just going to talk about, is it good for America? Well, the primary thing it does is shields Americans from competition. I mean, that's, they're not, that's not my insight. That's the intent, right? Like we don't want the, you know, ship from Portugal to compete with the ship from Massachusetts or whatever. Like they are shielding the ships from probably not Portugal, uh, probably Saudi Arabia. I don't know China. They're shielding these ships from um, from competition and these shippers. Now, let's look at the pro column. What happened? What's some good thing about that? And this is the only column that anyone ever discusses uh, when they're on this uh, when they're in this camp. They only ever talk about the pros. They'll say, "Well." Uh, in the immediate, well, they, they, they don't say in the immediate term, but this is only in the immediate term. Um, it makes things better. They'll say, well, it protects our shipping industry. And what that means is uh, in the immediate term, it makes things better for the few Americans, a handful, who are directly competing, uh, who might have otherwise felt pressure from the free market outside. Uh, so the free market might have made them have to be more efficient. They might have felt pressure, be more efficient, adapt, maybe even close because they can't do it or what, like they can't compete, whatever it is. There's pressure, downward pressure, like tough, you know, it's tough to run a business in a competitive world. So it's hard and they don't, and you know, they might not survive in the way that they're in their current form. So they like the way things are and to protect the way things are, um, you, you pass something like the Jones Act, which I guess is a hundred years old now. Um, so you're protect you're protecting them in the immediate term. Like, look, this is helping these few Americans. But what's it doing in the immediate term to the rest of us who aren't? I mean, you know, me raise your hand if you're a maritime shipper uh, that goes between ports in the U.S. But all of the rest of us get worse and and more expensive products or services because there's less competition. Um, it also like eliminates economies of scale that you could have with like, imagine you're coming from uh, Asia with a ship and you like, you want to drop off some of your stuff in San Francisco and then drop off stuff in LA and then head back. Maybe probably pick some stuff up also. So you don't, if we ship anything, if we exported anything, maybe you'd pick some stuff up and go back. So you're not hauling a blank, you know, empty ship, but you'd, you know, you'd stop at a couple of ports on the West coast and then turn around and go back. But you can't do that. You're not allowed because you can't, you can't stop in San Francisco and then go to LA. That's illegal. So 
because you're not an American. So what do you do? You got to stop in San Francisco. Or I think Oakland is the main port. You stop in Oakland and uh, unload all your stuff. And then, you know, uh, the, the, <laughs> this dude, Mr. Mr. Uh, his name is uh, Kuuhaku Park, the AMP president. One of his goons takes it from Oakland to Seattle and down to LA and whatever. Right. So you, you can't do, you got to stop in Oakland, turn around. And also, I mean, the, you can't go back even if you wanted to dump everything in Oakland, but someone in Seattle wanted you to pick something up and bring it back. You can't do that either. Like you, you can't go, you can't go to Seattle. You got to go home first. Um, so it creates, uh, everything's more expensive. You get less economies of scale um, and less competition in the long term. Uh, this actually hurts the entire economy. It hurts all of us. Um, so in the long, in the short term, it, you know, it hurts us in that, that kind of immediate sense in the long term, it actually weakens the entire economy as a whole. And, and the best way to describe this is maybe with a parenting analogy. People love parenting analogies. Um, uh, Alan Taylor says, this is not the first time waivers have been issued. Um, yeah, there used to be, it used to be easier to issue waivers and I don't know about cruise ships. They might be different. Um, it used to be easier to issue waivers. They changed the waiver rules recently. Um, and it's much harder now and you have to, and it's like, that's why it's only one ship. I think in the past, they just, I think Trump had issued a waiver for like multiple ships and like for just some period of time. That's not so easy anymore. Um, by the way, justifiably stupid says Dan Crenshaw, <laughs> I patch Republican, um, put on screen. Dan Crenshaw, iPatch Republican, is probably the person who protects the Jones Act. He explains that it has nothing to do with economic advantage. I wonder, what's his argument? I'd be curious. Um, anyway, the, the effect of this, let me, let me, the best way to explain why this it has a deleterious effect on the American uh, economy in the long term and Americans generally is, is, to, is to use this parenting analogy. Um, and I'm going to contrast two parenting strategies. One, uh, uh, unfortunately, is less common than I think it ought to be, although it was more common in the past, probably. And the other one is um, more common, and many of you, especially millennials, may recognize this. <laughs> uh, the one, the first parenting strategy is let's shield the kids, the kid from everything. Let's protect them. We have to protect our fragile children. We have to shield them from everything because they are fragile, right? Um, and so what that means is we will uh, not have grades. I know, by the way, I'm going to describe someone's childhood who I know personally. Um, let's not have grades because it's sad to get a C or an F. Um, let's not have competitive sports. Don't want to compete because some people lose. Everyone gets a trophy. Um, let's not give honest feedback because that would hurt their ego, right? Everything's perfect, honey. That's wonderful. That crappy painting you did is beautiful, right? Let's not expose them to any struggle, any suffering, no crying, no skinned knees, no uh, dealing with rejection. Um, let's let's protect them. We'll protect them from the evil, harsh world of 21st century America. Um, <laughs> that's one parenting strategy. You can see how I feel about it. That's one parenting strategy. Now, what happens in the short term with that parenting strategy? Well, uh, 
the kid has fewer hardships in childhood, presumably. So maybe you get maybe you get less crying and disappointment, and upset. You know, maybe maybe that's some outcome. You don't have to deal with with you know kids upset that they lost the soccer tournament or whatever because they all got a trophy. What's the long term result? What happens if a kid grows up like that? Well, um, they grow up to be extremely fragile. Uh, they grow up to be utterly incapable of dealing with the real world around them. Honest feedback hurts their feelings because they've never had to learn to deal with it. So they avoid honest feedback, which means they can't course correct. They can't improve themselves. Um, any little failure is just devastating to them. They have no resilience. They easily give up at the first sign of struggle. Ultimately, they're miserable. They're self-loathing. They're angry or depressed or whatever. And more important for this analogy, they're incompetent. Because like they don't, you know, they don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the the chutzpah, uh -huh, as they, since we're talking about Jewish people once in a while today, uh, they don't have the chutzpah to like persevere and overcome failures. Uh, failures are devastating, and just they they shun anything that might cause failure, and anything that might cause failure might also cause success. So. They kind of, you've neutered them as human beings, if that's your parenting style. Now, there's an opposite parenting strategy, which is that your goal is to create resilient, competent adults, adults that persevere. And obviously, when they're kids, you still protect them from what might truly break them. You know, you don't let the two-year-old wander into traffic or whatever, right? Because um, they do need to make it to adulthood for this strategy to matter. But... In general, you let them fail. You let them compete. Um, you don't give them a trophy when they don't do as well. You let them struggle with hard things. You give them honest feedback. You don't have to be mean, but you can say like, oh, you know, here's what's good about this. Here's what can be improved, right? Um, you you teach them that, you know, sometimes they're gonna lose battles. It doesn't mean they've lost the war, um, but what do you get in the short term when you do that? Well, uh, damn, I don't know. Maybe they might grumble at you for not protecting them. That's not the language they would use, but they might be grumpy with you. Uh, they'll have to deal with loss and failure and emotional pain, and you're going to have to be there. Um, you know, you're going to have to be the shoulder for them to cry on because they're going to cry. Things are going to happen. They're going to struggle. They're going to have some hardship. It won't be insurmountable, especially in 21st century America. Now, what happens in the long term? How do they grow up? Well, uh, they grow up with a sense of self-efficacy. Right? They are self-confident. They, they're confident that they can face the world and their challenges, that they have what it takes to face the world and its challenges because they've done it. It's a muscle that you build up. They don't give up just because there's a failure or because something's hard because they've had failures and hardships before. They're resilient, and they're adaptive, and they're resourceful. They're competent at life. And these things, by the way, in kids are prerequisites for happiness in adults. So the same thing kind of happens with an economy here. When you when you do some kind of protectionist thing, you alleviate the short-term pain for a few Americans, the ones directly involved in there. Usually you provide short-term pain for, you know, it's at the expense of the other Americans. Um, and it's at the long-term expense of everyone. Because it makes the uh, labor force uh, and the business force, uh, you know, weaker and less competent to deal with the real world. Because the real world is outside of our borders. Um, 
especially especially now in which we've got massive travel between even even after COVID, massive travel between nations, a connected world. You've got lots of developing economies. I mean, you can't you just weaken yourself if you're trying to play this protectionist game. So that's what that that's what things like the Jones Act do. Um, I'm going to quickly read this chat because I asked about Dan Crenshaw and what his argument was. Um, Justifiably Stupid says, I don't agree with him, but his context is that just like America needs medical manufacturing in the homeland. Uh, by the way, when someone uses the word homeland, I can't help but think of fatherland. <laughs> like fatherland and motherland are like, that's how the, the fascists and the Nazis refer to themselves. I guess we, we've chosen homeland because the other two were taken and the authoritarians here just need well, homeland. They won't notice that that's the same. Um, we need it in homeland. We also need transportation and shipping for times of crisis and war. Yeah, I, I, I get that he's trying to manage the economy or he's trying to manage supply chains. Um, like any good central planner, uh, good is in quotes. Um, look, I mean, you can do that. You can limit medical manufacturing for and, and transportation, um, but you're going to pay the long-term, you know, there's going to be long-term cost and there's going to be a short-term cost as well. All that stuff becomes more expensive. Uh, innovation starts happening elsewhere. I mean, you know, you, you can say, oh no, we didn't have medical equipment. Um, but it was dealt with. I mean, we dealt with it pretty quickly. It wasn't, it wasn't that big of a problem. I mean, people are like, oh no, we don't manufacture. Oh no, we didn't have medical stuff here. I was there like a mask shortage I missed? Like everyone and their dog went through 18 masks a day, especially in the Bay Area. I don't no one was ever like, I can't get a hold of the mask. I mean, we ran out of stuff that we already manufacture, like toilet paper. So uh I, I just don't the evidence doesn't suggest that he's right at all about that need. Um, he claims having critical infrastructure and personnel remaining loyal during war or crisis provide an insurmountable value to stability. The Jones Act makes it impossible for another country to embargo America on our own shores. Yeah. Again, like, what, what a small-minded thing to say. Like, okay, so you're going to cripple yourself for the next several decades in case, just in case... Some country wants to stop sending their ships between U.S. ports. I mean, look, it's not like you can erase the dependence we already have. I mean, they're, they're still coming with all their goods. They just can't be more efficient about it. So you're still screwing yourself over. And the idea that in some national, like in some really big national crisis like that, you couldn't figure out a way to get goods from L.A. to San Francisco is just like, what do you think? Like, have you, he hasn't ever been in the free market. I don't think he's not a free market guy, right? He just, he doesn't, you never run a business. I don't think he just, trust me. If there's, if there's a need to get from San Francisco to LA with a shipping container full of Cupid dolls, someone will do it. <laughs> they will figure it out. It will happen. Right. And if it's a, if it's a short-term crisis, yeah, that might involve, you know, diverting resources to railways or paying extra for this or like, you know, whatever, or, some ships are in America. So like, you know, it might involve that. If it's a long-term thing, guess who, guess what's going to happen immediately. We're going to start building shit. <laughs> that's, that's what happens. Right. Th this is from a, this is a coward and timid way. Crenshaw is a coward 
and he's timid in this sense. I'm not saying, I don't know what his war history is like, but like in this sense, it's a cowardly perspective. It's a perspective of, I'm afraid of all the other people in the world. And I'm afraid that if I just am free and interacting with them, I won't be valuable enough that they won't be able to cut me off without pain. I don't believe that. I think America is amazingly innovative. I think our, our market, even though it's not totally free, is crucial to innovation and development uh, for that other countries, frankly, mooch off of all the time. I think if we if we stopped doing our thing, I think it would hurt everyone else. I'm confident enough that we provide enough value to the world that the whole world is not going to want to cut us off. Maybe a country will here or there, but like that would have to be all the other countries, right? So if you got in a war with China and they're like, we're not sending your, you know, an economic war. And they're like, we're not sending our ships there anymore. So you're going to have to figure out how to get goods from LA to San Francisco. You just, you pick up the phone. Hey, Brazil. Hey, Canada. Hey, every other country in the world that's not China. Maybe not North Korea. You got some ships you can lend. We'll pay a little extra while we get back up on our feet. Like the idea, it's it's a very static view of the world. Like, well, we have to have this. Like, we are dynamic and capable, and we've proven ourselves to be innovative and able to build quickly what we need to build. So it, it's uh, it's not a good argument. Um, he says also the merchant marines are equivalent to National Guard. They are civilians with national security importance. That's the argument. That's the argument. Like they've got national security importance. Because, of course, what will happen in a war in 2022 – would be some kind of naval battle. That's very important. <laughs> We're always fighting the last war or the last century of war. All right. Um, I'm not going to keep going in the Jones office. I know I sound like I'm running for office. I don't, but like I'm not. I'm not running for office, but I know I sound like that G-man. Um, but look, I mean, this is a. Um, have you ever ha heard of uh, the abundance mindset? Um, there's this. There's this idea that if you approach life in in a kind of um, very jealous way, and you kind of feel like uh, you can't, you don't, you don't want to get cheated. You can't put stuff, something out there because someone will take what's yours. And like you, you're always thinking that you don't have a lot of resources, and you got to be, you know, whatever. I'm not saying not to be penny pinching when when necessary, but like if if your mindset is that you're in scarcity, you can almost never achieve success. Um, and, 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 and people talk about that, like people's like psychologists and people who do like business training, they talk about this, they talk about the abundance mindset, having this mindset, like, I'm going to put this out there and there's plenty out there for me. There's plenty out there for me to, uh, acquire. There's plenty, there's plenty of success out there for me to taste. I just have to not be, uh, I have to be, uh, expansive and, uh, and approach it with confidence instead of approaching it in a kind of tit for tat i'm worried of ever giving anything away or getting cheated or whatever like yeah sometimes you will get cheated but um like that mindset is a very small mindset of an, a small incompetent person who's frightened of the world and you don't need to be that if if you're i mean unless you've got some like major mental problems or whatever you're capable of interacting with all the other individuals in the world and showing them that you provide value in some way, whether it's coding or writing a novel or, you know, answering phones at HR or customer service or making a latte, whatever it is, 
you can do something that the world will value enough that you will get something back for it. And like, that's the mindset that built America. That's the mindset of entrepreneurship. And that's the, that's the only mindset that a successful country can have. You can't have a successful country with a mindset of, oh my God, what if we can't, we can't let, we can't do business with other people. What if they cut us off? It's a weak, weak mindset. Uh, and it, it's angering to me because it's so anti-American. It's, it's the opposite of the beautiful spirit that is America. All right. <sighs> so, sorry for the rant. Um, okay, I'm not going to uh, – I talked about the, the Jones Act and the protectionism. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. I am going to make a note, though, because we're talking about hurricanes, we talked about Fiona, and we talked about uh, – we didn't talk about Ian, but Ian just happened in Florida. Um, by the way, shout out to anyone who's in Florida. I hope you're, hope you're okay. Keith, the hat guy who did, um, who does 450 or not 451 rebel civics is in Florida. Um, and I don't think he, I think he did not broadcast live last week cause he had no power or internet or something, but, uh, I think he did today. All right. I just one one note on, on the hurricane stuff. I want to make a note. Uh, I want to talk about price gouging for a moment in times of crisis. Um, because you, you hear these stories of like, well, people don't have power. They don't have water. We can use water as an example. They don't have water or whatever. Um, and you hear this um, rhetoric about, sometimes I hear, you see, you see stories sometimes in the news of like, this guy was charging $20 for a bottle of water. This is price gouging. He's exploiting a crisis. What a jerk. Blah, 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 blah. And um, I'm going to put charity aside. Charity in a crisis We'll just put charity aside. I'm not going to talk about charity for, for a minute. I'm just going to talk about the non-charitable behavior. Um, this quote, price gouging is good. It is good. It's an efficient uh, way to allocate resources. It's the only efficient way to allocate resources. Um, and it provides an incentive to get more resources to a place that's resource deficient. So if you let's imagine you're out of water. You're out of drinking water, Right. What, how are you going to get, again, charity aside, how are you going to get drinking water there? You have to incentivize people to, to get drinking water there. There's only so much drinking water. What are you going to do? Now, typically what happens is we turn to price controls. You say, well, um, we don't want, we don't want this price gouging. That's a bad thing. Price gouging. Ugh, it's exploitative. So we say, oh, we're going to have price controls. What do price controls do? Well, um, Imagine you're a dude from two counties over. It's totally not worth your time to uh, normally to fill your truck up with a bunch of water and drive it to, you know, four hours away. Let's say you're four, five, six hours away. It's not worth your time to do that. You know, water's not that expensive. You don't, that's not your business normally. You wouldn't do that. Maybe you sell water, bottles of water where you are in your local area, but you know, there's no reason for you to ship it. There's some, it's already, there's already people there doing that. Now, suddenly they're in crisis. They need a lot of water. What makes you get off your ass, other than charity, what makes you get off your ass and say, oh, it's now worth it to me to do that? Price. Price. If it's more expensive, if it's like, well, it's a dollar here, but they're paying five bucks for it over there. That's five times as much. That means you can afford the transportation and the logistics and the overhead. Maybe you can even afford like less efficient modes of transportation than normal, right? And maybe you can buy your water not in bulk. So you can like access it. You can access more in the short term. You can, all your costs may go up 
And so your cost to do this normally at a normal price might not be worth it, but now it is, right? And so allowing price to increase by the market creates an incentive for people to come in and fulfill that. When you put price controls in and you say, well, thou shalt not charge more than $1.50 for a bottle or whatever it is, um, well, you've just, you've, you've, ruined the one you like just undermined the most important thing the most important thing is getting more water there and you've just ruined the incentive for anyone to do that you just you just destroy the incentive right so you mean now there's going to be less availability of water than there would have been otherwise now people make this argument and you know again it's this from this fairness well but not everyone can afford some if the prices go yeah sure that might be everyone can't afford as much as they want or they couldn't afford as much um but there's also less to afford because it's not there because no one's bringing it to you. Um, so there's this, you know, general inefficiency here. Um, let's imagine if you do a price control, let's imagine water is fixed at the price that it always was, but it's in a shortage. Now it's a massive shortage, but the government's fixing it at a price. They throw you in jail if you buy or sell it at a different price or a higher price. Well, let's say my neighbor really needs water. He's super thirsty, but I've got my own backup. I've got a bunch in the basement because that's the kind of person I am. So I'm cool. I don't need to go buy it. Um, now, but with price controls, I might, eh, it's not super urgent, but I might as well. I don't, it's not really important, but hey, it's not more expensive. So, you know, now if the price goes up, if there's no price control and it gets outrageous, I'm not going to say, "Oh, now's a good time to buy some water because my house plants are thirsty," right? Like that's I'm not going to do that. I'm going to waste it, right? Um, and if the price goes up, my neighbor's probably going to buy as little as he needs to get through. He might even buy it from me because I have some in my basement. Um, but the allowing the price to fluctuate means that I'm not going to I'm not going to spend it unless I need I need it. Not gonna waste the money on it. Um, now, price controls also can set up a new problem. Uh, in addition to reducing the efficiency of the market, they can also set up a new problem, which is hoarding, right? So, um, and so people usually, so then they usually add rationing in order to fix the hoarding problem, right? But that doesn't fix the supply problem. You still don't have the incentive for people to bring water into your area. It doesn't fix the inefficiency problem where. Um, you know, I'm buying water when I don't really need to. It really needs to be efficiently distributed to people who need it most, um, which is measured through price. Um, it doesn't fix that inefficiency because I would just say, well, I'll at least buy my rations worth of water for my house plants, right? <laughs> Maybe I'll sell it on the black market, but whatever. Like, I'll still get, you know. So, I, you know, the thing that I, the reason I'm commenting on this is I, I was thinking to myself, how perverted is it? This is the black pill of the, of the day. <laughs> how perverted is it that in a natural disaster, otherwise reasonable Americans go, oh, it's an emergency? Let's do some communism. And can we get the DMV to manage the communism? That's the, that's basically what we're doing, Right. So crises like, you know, Ian hit, yeah, charity's fine. Acute charity doesn't have the same negative consequences that chronic charity does. So this is a, a case of acute charity. Like they need, there's a one-time need, fine. But when a crisis hits, like, 
that's when you need the free market. You need the incentives, you need the innovation, you need the creativity, you need to allow, uh, you need to let the, the market work. You need those economic incentives to get people to supply what you don't have. And it's way better at problem solving that problem than government administrators are. And the fact that as Americans, like the fact that we turn to price controls and rationing at the, the first sign of any trouble, the fact that we do that betrays what is in the heart of heart for most Americans. And that is they don't believe liberty is moral. They don't trust the free market. They view it as a necessary evil. It's a luxury that they'll discard when their lives depend on it. And that's that to me is the black pill of the day. Like that's the black pill of the day. Um, they don't they don't trust any. This is a oh, it's an emergency communism. Now I just depressed myself. All right. I think that's it for today. We've gone for two hours. Um, G-Man says, you mean like in Flint, Chicago, and Jackson, Mississippi? I don't know what they're doing there other than that the government's responsible for the water and it has contaminants in it, which, yeah. Um, I don't. I haven't followed. I just know like, oh, yeah, Flint water's toxic because the government's involved. Um, all right. That's it for today. Thank you for watching. Um, we're going to do, I am still interested in troublesome arguments. You are, are, you know, if you guys are, uh, you're having, if there's arguments you're having trouble refuting that you're hearing, if there's arguments you want to make that you're having trouble making, um, please send them to me in discord or just, uh, post them on YouTube and we'll start talking about them. Um, I did want to do a little bit more of a Q and a, um, today, but, uh, I frankly, there just wasn't a lot of like, there was some good stuff on discord that came in, but it was very like, wow, this is a big topic for maybe a series of shows. Uh, there wasn't a lot of just specific Q&A type of questions. And I'm willing to do that, but uh, I just, you know, if you guys don't want that and you prefer this kind of stuff, I'll keep doing this. This is fine. So an enormous thank you to those of you who uh, continue to support us financially. Thank you so much. You can join them at OnSafeSpace.com. You get your name in the credits. Once in a while, we update them. We're supposed to do it once a month. Uh, I'm a little bit behind right now, so you can blame me. Um, this show, Dangerous Thoughts, is on every Wednesday night. Um, and then... Wednesday afternoons is Rebel Civics with uh, Keith Bissett. On Tuesdays, every other Tuesday is 451 Degrees, which is a show about big tech and censorship, hosted by Alex Maselli. Um, Mondays, we have a show called Narrative Dissonance, which is about uh, questioning the mainstream narrative about things. I think last Monday we had Brian um, McGlinchey from Stark Realities on. Great guy to have on, uh, you know, good writer, um, you know, talks about some of the stuff we should be talking about. Um, and then on uh, Thursdays, we have, uh, you know, for pop culture aficionados and Amazon Prime addicts, uh, we have Token Minority Report with Beverly and Alex. And I think there's a new show. I'm out of the loop. I'm not even, there's a new show. What's it called? I think it's called Occasional Levity, and I think it's on Fridays, but I have no idea what time. Our next book club is October 30th, Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Juliet is hosting that one. So uh, if you want to do that, it should be an easy read. Um, I haven't read it, but I, I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to participate in this book club, uh, but just as a, just as a participant, not as a host. So I'm going to check that out. I suggest you do the same. I will see you all uh, on Monday, I guess, for, for narrative distance. So, uh, all right, let me find the credits. I think Beverly's gone. So I'm going to have to roll the credits myself. All right, everyone. Thanks. Have a good night. Uh, appreciate your sticking around. I appreciate the chats. Like I said, Hop into Discord. I love to hear more discussion. The discussions in Discord really do help me. Um, 
know what you guys want to talk about uh, and, and then address that on these kind of shows. Take care, everyone. Good night. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. It would be better for your health if you forgot what you just heard. That should be easy for someone of your intelligence. The following co-conspirators are hereby ordered to watch CNN. Experts agree that 87,000 new tax collectors will make inflation feel like less of a problem. I think we can agree that the FBI's track record speaks for itself. If you think about it, only government-sanctioned experts should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.